Kam Namauri, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up... We do not really go out of the way celebrating it. What Matsuriki means for Pacific people. Also... It may be a solution in the long term, you know, keeping track of people. PNG government wants mandatory IDs to prevent lawlessness in cities. And later we talk in depth about Kiribati Language Week in New Zealand. Matsuriki, known as the Māori New Year, is being celebrated in New Zealand. But the time of year centred around the star constellation is also acknowledged in Rarotonga. Cook Island's cultural expert and master carver Michael Tavioni says the Matsuriki stars were an important tool for navigation by Polynesian people as they sailed across the Pacific. However, he explains to Caleb Fotheringham why the time of year is more significant for Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's one of the most prominent navigational collection of stars for navigation. Our people developed uh, in their experience of migration from Southeast Asia to America and back long before the Europeans got over the fear of sailing to the horizon because initially the Europeans are afraid of falling off the edge of the of the world. When there's the horizon, it just drops off. What the Polynesians created is crossing the biggest ocean in the world they were scientists at the same time. They learned the mood of the ocean. They learned the good and bad side of the wind. And they learned a lot more about the cosmos. So Matsaraki is just one portion of the cosmos, which they use to their advantage. And with the other stars, they developed a 32-point star compass long before any European lived too far on the boat and go too far away from land. So what's Masariki is that, and one of the important uh, stars that our people use for, for navigation is not the only one, but it happens to be at certain times of the year where the food security, which is used as an indication to good or bad, a food production of one kind or another. So it's related to, uh, to we call it anapo, which means uh, don't plant the bananas at the time of the day because it's no good. Don't plant the kumara on the other day because the, the moon is pulling the liquid from the whole earth towards it. Therefore, the kumara, when it's ready, will be too full of water. So that kind of thing. Do Cook Islanders and Māori people in New Zealand relate to Matariki the same way, or is it a bit different? So what they do there is is localise. You know, if they see Matariki in a different way, it's a temperate climate, and because of the, temper, the temperate climate, there's a season of winter and summer, which is unlike the one in Rotorua. So Matariki to the, in New Zealand is accelerated and more and more developed as a focal point for celebration, but but that celebration is really relative to food security. In Rotonga, we don't have that big difference because we can plant kumara all year round. In New Zealand, they can't. That is why Masariki and other seasonal changes in New Zealand is more prominent because it's relative to food production increase food 
security either on land or in Taiwan. So the, the food security and the survival is, is absolutely dependent on the climate changes in New Zealand, which is unlike here. So it's very critical in New Zealand to observe mortality and every other natural indicators relative to food supply. Do we celebrate mortality as much as New Zealand? No. But we identify mortality for what it is. But we do not really go out of the way celebrating it. The Papua New Guinea government announced earlier this month that it plans to make identification or ID cards mandatory for residents in major urban areas. This move follows recent violence at Koki in Port Moresby. Prime Minister James Marape said every person living in those cities would have to carry one of these ID cards. Don Wiseman spoke with our PNG correspondent Scott Whitey about the suggestion. The PNG government announced last week that one of its means by which you might control or would try to control violence in the urban areas is to ensure that everyone has an identity card. The thing about PNG is that ID cards, well, they've been in force in places, haven't they, for some time? Yes. So they were brought in for what reason? I think for various reasons, and one of the, one of the biggest reasons was so that the government could keep better track of population, health statistics, and everything related to it. The problem with that is that the system that was put in place to assist people, you know, facilitate that production of national ID card hasn't really worked for many people. There are hundreds of thousands of people who still haven't received national ID ID. And that's been one of the biggest frustrations amongst many Papua New Guineans who have applied. They're still waiting for their ID card. For example, my, my ID card took me at least two years to process and we applied as part of a part of a company. So imagine if it took two years for me, there are others who, who have waited like three, four years and still haven't received the ID card. So it's a it, it's a problem that still hasn't been solved. Uh, and the government's gone ahead and issued these directives to have public servants compulsorily given uh, or apply and be given NID cards when the system doesn't actually work for them. Yeah, in fact, they're talking about everyone, aren't they? Not just public servants. Everyone is to have these cards. And it was their way of, well, it was the part of the government's reaction after the violence in the Koki settlement area last week. It's not going to solve that, is it? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's definitely not going to solve it in the short term. It's not going to solve it in the short term. It, it may be a solution in the long term, you know, keeping track of people coming in and seeing where they end up, keeping tabs of where they come from. And that provides, you know, insight into the migration of people into urban centers and migration of people into rural centers or if they relocate. And, you know, the, the other problem with that is that people get registered for NIDs in, in say, Western Highlands and then move to Port Moresby. Their, their statistics are registered in the Western Highlands so you've got this ongoing movement of people. People don't live in one place. And many who migrate from rural areas end up in, in Port Moresby and then maybe go back to their villages again. And their statistics are in Port Moresby. So you've got that scenario that doesn't really work for a country trying to keep tabs on people and making sure that, you know, the health statistics correspond with the services that are provided and policing services are, are delivered to a, a certain number of people. So all that put together is, is, is a very 
difficult situation. The Prime Minister very clearly wants to target the settlements. He said in his statement the other day that if people don't behave or if they're not carrying, once they've issued these cards, if they're not carrying these cards, they'll be sent back to their home province. How will that go down? reality, it'll be a difficult exercise. I mean, if the government is going to take responsibility to compel people to go back to their home provinces because they don't have an NID card, it hasn't worked in some locations. For example, there was a, this is totally unrelated to the NID situation, but just, just an example of when you try to relocate people. We had the Sepik settlers who've been there for over 50, 60 years in, in Bulolo who were who clashed with local people. And the government, the district government, assisted them to go back to East Sepik. They came back. It, it hasn't worked for them. So you've got people in Port Moresby, Ley, Mount Hagen, who've lived there for generations. You know, their grandparents came to the cities and they lived there. So the, the third, fourth generation urban kids who've grown up here. Having them trying to force them to go back to their parents' place of origin will be really difficult. They have no connection. It's a challenge for a country in transition trying to manage all the different ethnicities that live in a city, trying to manage that that transition from a village-type community to an urbanized community and and ironing out those differences. That's the challenge that we we face. The government, it would seem, has got to bite the bullet, find land on which to build houses to accommodate these people who are in these shanty towns and try and provide services for them and so on. That seems to be what they should be doing. Do you think there's any chance of them doing that? Yes, there are ongoing land reforms that are happening, um, not as fast as it should happen, but there are, there are ongoing land reforms that are happening. Now, the resistance is largely with customary landowners who are not readily willing to give up their land, and, and rightfully so, because over the years, land management has proven to be very difficult in Papua New Guinea. There's been a lot of corruption in the lands department over the last three, four decades. We're just starting to try to fix those issues now and harnessing the land is the first thing and then creating planned settlement and maintaining that trajectory with the appropriate political will. And when I say political will, you already understand that it's quite difficult to sustain a political rhetoric and turn that into action in Papua New Guinea. So it's a pretty difficult situation. Kiribati Language Week 2023 comes to an end in New Zealand, and while 50% of e-Kiribati people in the country speak the Tungaru language, according to the Ministry for Pacific Peoples, there's a need to increase these numbers, especially with a younger generation. Among them is e-Kiribati artist and University of Auckland student Vaitua Mellon, who also proudly identifies as Banaban, African-American, Samoan and Irish. He joins me on Pacific Waves, Mori Vaitsua, what does Kiribati language mean for you? Yeah, for me, uh, Kiribati language is a, it's about reflection and it's kind of a reminder for me to acknowledge and to be proud of my heritage. And I guess as a Kiribati person in a diaspora, I try to use this week um, to, to try and learn at least one thing new in regards to Kiribati language and culture. And I think it's also a reminder for me to keep engaging uh, with learning the language and culture, even when the week is done. Just so it's like a, a one-off kind of thing. Because, you know, language weeks and culture can mean different things and can look different for everyone. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, always, it's, a, it's a life journey. I'm just trying to learn more about myself. 
understand that you're also Samoan. What's it like juggling multiple Pacific identities? Yeah, it's always been a bit of a challenge for myself trying to juggle, juggle my different Pacific identities, especially when I'm like more connected to one of, the, one of my cultures than the other. And I think that's definitely impacted how I've identified and expressed myself to others. Because from during my life, I've always just told people that I'm Samoan Irish. And I've only said that because I'm closer with that side of my family and that culture, and compared to my mother, the Kiribati side, where most of my family overseas, it's always found it easy for a general audience to understand the idea of like an apakasi, of just a Samoan white, instead of like having to list all my cultures. And sometimes, you know, people don't know where or what Kiribati is, so I've, I've always tried to avoid that kind of like awkwardness and just simply state that I'm only Samoan and Irish. So yeah, it's been a bit of a juggle, but as I've gotten older and especially gone to uni, I try to acknowledge and express and identify my Ikiribas side more, and especially in like very Polynesian dominated spaces. Um, yeah, I just try to represent my Micronesian side as much as I can. So, you also identify as Barnaburn, and not many people are aware of its relationship with Kiribas. I mean, what significance does Kiribas Language Week hold for them? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I've really come to really understand the relationship between Barnaburn and Kiribas recently and um yeah I'm Barnabin and because of my maternal grandfather's side so from my grandfather Tabaki Tawatewa and you know so currently Barnaba is a part of Kiribati's territory and that's because Barnaba was handed over by the British when Kiribati gained independence in 1979 and you know as a result of that like Barnaba the Barnaban language has died and most Barnabans now speak Gilbertese and you know, prior to the process of colonization, you know, Barnaba was, was its own independent nation, its own culture, with its own language. And that history is often obscured. And I think as a person of both Barnaba and Kiribati heritage, I, like during this week, I try to honor both both sides, both cultures. And, you know, that, and, there's, and there's difficulty to that. Because I think uh, for many Barnabans, like Kiribati's language, because there's a lot of ambivalence there, there's a lot of mixed feelings. And, I think the best that we can, that Bottoms can do during this time is to celebrate um, their culture, our culture, but, you know, also acknowledge the relationship between Barnaba and Kiribati, but also acknowledge the cultural differences too. So I think there's just a lot of ambivalence, but, you know, that gives us, I think that gives us an opportunity to also celebrate our culture too, Barnaba culture. Would you say that you're fluent speaking Kiribati, or do you find it's more easier or harder than the Samoan language? Uh, I'd say my proficiency for both Kiribati and Samoan languages is very low, um, but I'm still on that path of trying to learn both the languages. And but as of now, I'd say I understand uh, Samoan better than I can understand Gilbertese. But when I hear, when I do hear the Kiribati language, it, it's very it's just super cool to listen to. It's so interesting, and especially the tone in which it's spoken, the cadence and the sound. But yes, I'm I'm still very much still trying to learn my Pacific languages. How are you learning Kiribati language at the moment? I, I often like just I often ask a lot of questions towards my auntie my aunties and um and my grandfather and it's very small I'd say it's very small little efforts it's like little gestures of trying to like learn a language um particularly like when it comes to when I'm speaking in front of a crowd for example or a speech I try to incorporate a kid of us greeting or I try to finish off my my speech in a kid of us like in a saying or a phrase. Little things like that. Um, that's how I feel like I can gesture or like engage 
like with little steps uh, into learning the culture. But yeah, still, still working on it for sure. Mm-hmm. For all the people listening, uh, there are two. There are two. Uh, I have a saying for you. So, if you ever saying goodbye or best wishes or thank you, you can say "kambasirapa," "kambasirapa," which is the plural version. Or if you're saying thank you to one person, you can say "ko basirapa." So "kambasirapa" or plural "ko basirapa." And also, happy Matsuriki as well. Besides the language and culture, what are some of the things that you want people to be more aware of when it comes to Kiribati? I think the, the biggest thing I would encourage people to be more aware about when it comes to Kiribati, like kind of the issues around the climate crisis and mm. just the threat that not only poses to the loss of land, but also to the loss of like the culture and cultural identity. And I think, um, you know, that. I think the climate change extends the climate change issue extends all across the Pacific, and I think um, we I think a lot of people can learn a lot from trying to understand or being aware of those issues taking place in the Pacific, just because it affects all of us. Really, if we think about it. So I don't know. I think I think climate climate crisis is a really huge um, part of good of us. You know, we can be a, a bit more aware about. Your mother and fa- uh, father, they're well-known in terms of the academia space. Did you ever feel that there was pressure on you to follow in their footsteps? Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I would say I've never really felt the pressure. I've definitely acknowledged the kind of, like, um, I think the privilege that I've, I've had of them being in those spaces. Um, but, yeah, I'm very, I'm very content with myself, and I know I am my own person. Um, and I'm trying to find my own feet. So, yeah, I'm, I, I can understand how the, I, the perceptions of pressure could be there, but I, w- I wouldn't say I feel pressure for myself uh, uh, considering their background. Awesome. So looking towards the future, what are your aspirations or dreams? I think a big aspiration is to definitely uh, visit get a bus in person at some point before, before it's too late. Um, but, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I just want to do the best I can to represent uh, my my family um, and just to re- represent my cultures and put my cultures out there and help those communities. And yeah, one small step at a time, really. But yes, I, in terms of career, I'm not too sure. But I know I just want to do something that helps my helps my culture and the community that I belong to. That's Pacific Ways for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, it's all fast way forward.